Welcome to Danielle Smith's Razor Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, president of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to fraserforum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is danielle at fraserforum.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hunting and trapping is long gone. I mean, what do you do? Well, he, he got them going on first growing grapes and selling grape juice to the wineries and then setting up their own recreational businesses, uh, their own winery that people could visit and hotel, golf course, and so on. So he took the advantages that were there. His people developed those and they're making, they're not in the top 21 yet, but they've made a whole lot of progress. So that's what it comes down to is uh, that's why there's no one set scheme to follow. You have to analyze your situation and take take advantage of whatever you have. I am delighted today to be interviewing a former professor of mine, Dr. Tom Flanagan, who is now a professor emeritus at the University of Calgary in political science, as well as senior fellow of the Fraser Institute. Dr. Tom, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, hi, Danielle. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Well, you've had a, a long history in, in writing about First Nations issues, and I, I want to talk to you about some of the, the more recent issues that, that we've been exposed to. But I, I am sort of interested in knowing, for instance, when you when you wrote your landmark book, First Nations, Second Thoughts, what were, what were some of the reasons what, that prompted you to get into this area of research? Well, that book was a response to the uh, Commission of Inquiry on Aboriginal Peoples, which reported in 1996 and uh, had been commissioned by Brian Mulroney when he was prime minister. And uh, I thought that the uh, report w went in the wrong direction. So I wanted to respond to it. And I, I did try to do sort of a global response, hitting a, uh, what I thought were a number of important areas. Um, and in fact, the Kretchen government paid lip service to the report, but didn't really do very much to implement it. So I, you know, I sort of felt maybe, well, maybe I'd made some some ground there. Not that the Kretchen government gave me any credit, but you know, see, things seemed to be moving in the right way for a while. But but that didn't last. Um, so we're back twenty years later with uh, with all the issues uh, at the forefront again. You know, I remember meeting many First Nations leaders when I was on the campaign trail, and some of them were pretty angry at that book, even even still. And so I, I, I wonder when you look back on it, is there anything in, in there that you think was misplaced or that you would have argued differently? Or do you think we're developing more of an understanding that some of the things that you recommended then are actually kind of the foundation for what we need to do going forward? Uh, there are no arguments uh, that I made in the book that I would change today. Maybe I would change some of the language, although, you know, evaluating the language of something written 20 years ago, you know, people's use of terms changes. Uh, but I think the arguments are still the same. But what I've done now, research in the last 10 years, research on the prosperity of First Nations is to take uh, one theme from that earlier book on the importance of property rights and of, uh, of sound government and amplify those and try and show the linkage with uh, with greater prosperity of First Nations. So it's a continuation of what I've done before, but it's more on the positive side. Instead of saying, I think this whole direction is wrong, uh, I'm trying to say, here's a direction that 
is working for many First Nations who've chosen to go this way. Do you think the reserve system in our in our current environment is one that can allow for First Nations to thrive, or is is the is the structure of some of those nations and their remoteness kind of at the core of the problem? I'm still trying to sort of grapple with this because as we develop new technologies, especially as we've seen through the pandemic era, if you've got good technology, you can pretty well do whatever work you you desire from whatever location, and and maybe technology is overcoming some of those remote distance problems. Or maybe some of these reserves were just so far out of the way; it's it's kind of set some of them up for for failure. How 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 do you how do you see that now? Well, there's two questions in there. One is uh, the reserve system, and uh, yeah, personally, I think it's 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 not ideal. If you could create a different world, uh, it would be nice not to have reserves. But uh, the reserves were created for. Reasons that were valid at the time um, in the 19th century when the First Nations people were deprived of their livelihoods of, from hunting and fishing and trapping. And so land was set aside for them where they would, you know, have a place where they could live. And in, in the southern reserves, they could make a living from agriculture. Um, at this point, First Nations are, uh, although they condemn the reserve system, they're attached to the reserves because that's the, where they have lived. There's, I think, zero likelihood of, of doing away with reserves. So what I've tried to do is point out how it is possible to make the reserve system work better. You know, it's not a perfect uh, a perfect solution to our problems, but it, I think it makes, uh, it makes things better for some people, uh, you know, and maybe for many people eventually. So uh, that's, that's what I've been trying to do. Let's talk a bit about property rights, because I think that this is I mean, in a sort of a, a European context, the idea of individual property rights is not controversial really at all. I mean, most people aspire to own a, a vehicle and then ultimately buy their first home and they own the, the the product of their labor and they own an entitlement to their pension fund. So I think when you talk about an, a European environment, the, the notion of property rights doesn't can carry controversy, but it seems to when we apply this to, to First Nations. Or, or is that changing? What, how, what, do you think we have some um, historical issues about how property was owned in common that might be difficult to overcome? Or are there property structures that kind of mirror what we're used to in, in European societies? Yeah, well, see, I think there's a lot of misconceptions here. The, the, uh, the, the First Nations were taken over by, a, not, not governmentally taken over, but in, in terms of interpretation, taken over by um, socialists and communists from, from the European tradition who wanted to present First Nations as avatars of socialism. So they obscured the extent to which First Nations did have property rights. They weren't exactly like European rights. They were, they were quite different, but they certainly had them. Um, they, you know, they owned the, their own weapons and housing, whether it was tents or cabins, their, their horses when they began to use horses, the, the products of their hunt or trapping. Um, the fishing societies had private for sort of family ownership of uh, fishing stations. Uh, berry picking grounds were commonly owned. Uh, in the agricultural Indians of Eastern Canada, 
there was a kind of combined family and individual ownership of, of plots of land. Um, trapping, trap lines were owned by, again, by families and, and individuals within that. Mm. So there was an extensive system of individual property rights, which, I mean, one of the great tragedies is that uh, when European dominance came, those pre-existing uh, First Nations property rights were largely swept away. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in an ideal world, they would have been recognized and converted into a form that could be protected uh, under our system of law. But for the most part, that wasn't done. And so the impression grew that First Nations, uh, you know, were people without property. Well, that then started to get taught in the schools and it got taught to First Nations themselves. And it became politically convenient for their leaders mm -hmm. to adopt that position. Um, but it's, it's, it's historically false. And it's not even consistent with the Indian Act. The Indian Act um, allows for a system of private property on reserves uh, known as certificates of possession, which are widely used, but it's, it's spotty around the country. They're widely used in BC and Southern Ontario and Quebec, uh, not used very much in the Prairie provinces. Um, but they're a, a form of private property, which is pretty close to fee simple, except that you can only sell it to another member of the band or, or give it or uh, testate it to another member of the same band, uh, which is a big restriction. But still, uh, within that restriction, it is a form of private property and allows for all kinds of uses like building housing and farming and setting up businesses. So there's potential there, even within the existing legislation. The existing legislation could be improved and has been improved in some ways. Uh, but even within that, there's there's lots of room to get working. I, I maybe should, shouldn't uh, assume too much from our listeners that they understand why private property and those kind of ownership structures lead to economic prosperity, but they, but they do. <laughs> and so tell us a little about why that is. Why is it that private property ownership structures end up with better outcomes than common property ownership structures? Is there, is there, is there, some, is there some simple way for us to be thinking about that and why that is so foundational to the work that you're doing now? Yeah, it's a matter of incentives. Um, private property sets up incentives for people to make better use of what they own because they reap the benefits from that. And so it's actually in everybody's interest for people to make the best possible use of, of what they own. And, but, but you don't have to guide them to do it because uh, they have, excuse me, incentives to do it on their own. And that's as true of First Nations people as it is of any other people in the world. And I think historical experience shows overwhelmingly that only societies with robust systems of private property have ever achieved prosperity and high levels of civilization. Now, these rights can be very different. The Romans had their system of property, and we have ours, and the, the, the Chinese have been moving towards, uh, towards their system. I mean, the, the, the details of the laws can be quite different, but there, there has to be a recognized system of private property for markets to function. And without markets, then you're left with some kind of central control, uh, which demonstrably doesn't work. So, you know, that's why I entitled my most recent book, The Wealth of First Nations. I was playing on Adam Smith's mm -hmm. great book, uh, The Wealth of Nations. And let's make the point that the principles that Smith elaborated are just as valid for First Nations people as they are for anybody else.
You know, it's interesting as we have this conversation, I'm always conscious, especially in this very uh, fractured environment, that talking about First Nations issues, there's a sensitivity about it imposing an European or paternalistic framework on, on the discussion. And so I, I want to just uh, unbundle that a little bit because I don't know that in, that we've come to that conclusion 100% that private property matters. Otherwise, you take a very different approach in how we support First Nations through federal transfers, for instance. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know if there are very many First Nations where individual home ownership is common. You talk about the certificates of possession, but it seems like it's far more common to build housing and then operate it without that kind of ownership structure. And it, it seems like that might be one of the starting points for how we could change the way we do transfers. I don't know if you've got some thoughts on that for what might be working in, on certain reservations. Oh yeah, for, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and this is uh, what you say is true. But it's the source of the chronic housing shortage on uh, on Indian reserves. Is the uh, the property rights are not properly aligned. So uh, on a lot of reserves, the the uh, the band government pays for houses to be built and then assigns them according to some kind of waiting list. It's sort of like getting housing in the old Soviet Union. Uh, so you get on the list, you don't own it. Um, you may not have to pay any rent at all, or maybe you pay some nominal rent that's not nearly close enough to the true cost. Uh, again, each each situation is different. You have to look at each one. But um, you don't have the normal incentives for people to care for housing and to reinvest in it. Um, I'm sure almost everybody listening to this is going to know from experience that homes don't care for themselves. You have to be constantly upgrading and, and repairing. And that's true of homes on reserves as well. So, uh, but there are there is a lot of individually owned housing on reserves uh, using CPs. Not as much as I would like to see, but there is some, and I think the experience shows that it's it's much better cared for. Now, I want to also add that uh, there, there's a, there's another uh, avenue down here. Uh, the one fork in the road of prosperity is through use of certificates of possession, and uh, I think that's pretty important. But the other fork is. Uh, rational use of the uh, of the band's assets treated as a, a sort of common property of the community. So it's, uh, you know, you could almost compare it to a Hutterite farm where the community owns the land. Mm -hmm. Individuals may get benefits from it, uh, but but the, there's a communal way of making decisions. Now, in the case of the Hutterites, it's a sort of theocratic government, but in the case of uh, First Nations, it'll be in a... Um, a band government, which may be elected or not, depending on their system. And uh, so there's a lot of good examples, too, of how bands are achieving prosperity through use of their common property uh, to get into business. Uh, Fort Mackay First Nation is a great example of that. They don't use certificates of possession, but uh, they have used their advantage of location to engage with the oil sands. And they have set up companies which are owned by the band to create jobs for members that go into partnerships with uh, external companies to provide the expertise that they need. And they earn a lot of money for the community, which is then used, um, yeah, for building housing. And, but they then charge a rational rent for the housing. And um, they make it, uh, you know, the, the, the alignment of incentives is, uh, is much closer. So it's not just individual property rights on reserves, all that for some uh, First Nations, that's going to be crucial. But for others, they may 
go down the path of uh, using their common property uh, within the larger economic system. And, and that can work as well. Uh, I think it has some potential problems because it is still a kind of government control, but at least it's a government which is much closer to the, to the people who are involved with it. And, uh, you know, thus far, you can see a lot of successful examples. Uh, and I want to get into some of those successful examples, but I don't want to leave this uh, one last piece, because as you're talking, I was thinking of Hernando de Soto and the mystery of capital and how important it becomes to have uh, value in property that you can use as collateral to go and get loans. I mean, this is how a lot of entrepreneurs get started is that they're able to uh, pledge the equity in their home in order to get that initial loan. And, and the, the examples that you've given suggest that uh, at least in a, in a common property arrangement, First Nations are figuring out how to do that. But it does strike me that without that individual property ownership, that, that very first step in entrepreneurship becomes really difficult for, for a member of a, of a band living on a reserve. Uh, yeah, you're right. It is. Um, and uh, so if you're going down the path of, of band-owned enterprises, the, uh, the band effectively becomes the entrepreneur. Um, now, the way this dilemma was resolved up at Fort Mackay, the band was the main entrepreneur, but the the band government was also devoted to individual entrepreneurship. So they set up um, device, this, for example, a kind of business park on the reserve where members could uh, locate their own businesses. And so while the band government was pursuing uh, its businesses, the um, there's uh, members who were setting up their own individually owned uh, businesses, trucking, heavy equipment, stuff like that. And uh, you know, there's some very wealthy members of hmm. Fort Mackay as individuals, as well as a, a successful collectivity. So I think the two can can work together. And certificates of possession is is one approach, but it but it's not the only one, not the only one. Um, so I'm not dogmatic about the way in which it. I think you have to take account of cultural differences for people. Uh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean capitalism doesn't work exactly the same way as capitalism in North America. And First Nations capitalism will work in, in somewhat different ways. And those differences are interesting and important. But as long as you have incentives that uh, make it profitable for people to do things that, that make them more prosperous, you're, you're going to make progress. I think this is important. I, I mean, I, I like the fact that you call it First Nations capitalism, because I, I think that there is this notion and you see it strangely. And in, in some of the language, even as I was reading through the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, it seems like, on the one hand, um, they recognize that First Nations, Indigenous peoples, sh should have all of the access to all of the wealth generating opportunities as non-Indigenous societies. But at the same time, they also talk about the right to subsistence living. And, and so there's almost this sense that the, that hunter-gatherer societies are ones that ought to be able to flourish to the same level as those that are capturing the ability to, to invest capital. And I, I wonder if we have to kind of address that head on, because I, I do believe that there is this kind of notion that the optimal way to live in society is to live in harmony with nature without capitalism living communally, sharing, living off the land. And I, I don't know that the aspirationally, that's what most First Nations communities actually want, but it does seem like that is the the model for how a lot of our 
our our structures around supporting First Nations ha have been in the past. Am I am I misreading that, or do you think that there's something to that? Well, it, it depends on where you are. The the hunter gather gathering way of life is is still at least semi viable in some parts of northern Canada, where you still can't. Some people can still make a living by hunting, fishing, and trapping, and and a lot of other people pursue it as a kind of an important hobby that contributes to their standard of living. And I think that's great. And uh, we want to make that possible to continue. But realistically, that's only a, a minority of First Nations. The vast majority of First Nations people live in Southern Canada where uh, that way of making a living is completely impossible now um, and has been for a long time. And uh, even agriculture now is not a viable alternative for most people. You've got to be part of the of the larger society and uh, working within that to to make a living. So it all depends on where you're located. And I'd be perfectly happy to see some uh, remote First Nations if they want to continue to live in the bush with hunting and fishing and trapping. And uh, um, but but that's really now a kind of a peripheral thing. I mean, there's a lot of talk about hunting mm -hmm. rights, but in reality, that's not going to support very many people. It's, it's, it's emotionally and symbolically important, which I understand, but it's, that's not how you're going to support your, uh, your people. Like, now, Fort Mackay, again, I, I come back to them because I went up there and studied that. I think I have some understanding. They're very much in the oil sands game. And that's how they're making a good living for their people. And the, the people all have jobs and you know are working, um, but they have managed to set aside one area uh, around a particular lake, which they see as kind of a home base. And they go there for vacations. They take their children there. They teach them how to to uh, trap and hunt and fish out there. And they want to preserve that. They don't. They're under no illusions that that's how they'll support themselves. But that's their way of uh, uh, keeping their story alive. So it's not one or the other. It's both. It's a, it's a matter of... In that case, of yeah, it's, you can have both. But now if you're the, uh, you know, the Tsutsina living on the edge of Calgary uh, or the Enoch Cree living on the edge of Edmonton, there isn't really much potential for <laughs> a hunting, uh, hunting, fishing, trapping kind of life. And you one way or another, you got to come to terms with the modern industrial and post-industrial world, which, which, which those First Nations are doing. So I think you have to look at all the different situations and don't want to dogmatically prescribe, uh, you know, for, uh, you have to look at, at their situation. What are the locational advantages or disadvantages that they have and what can they do given those circumstances? As we talk more about First Nations capitalism and own source revenues, I, I want to just have you address head on some of the other misconceptions as well, or, or maybe it's a structural issue. You can, you can describe it to me, but... Are, I think that uh, the federal government's obligations under under treaty and certainly with the entrenchment of Aboriginal rights in the Constitution has resulted in a series of payments that go directly to First Nations. And it's it's been a growing share of the budget. I was surprised to read in, in one of the articles that you've written that it is now the second highest area of spending in, in the federal government. And so I want to deal with it in two ways, because in one way... Tell us the sort of the, the foundation and nature 
of those transfers because we we all have municipal and provincial governments that also receive a substantial number of transfers and provide a substantial amount of programming. But there does seem to be some... um, some frustration, if I can put it that way, on the part of those who see those transfers but don't see it resulting in improvement of conditions. And so I'm wondering, what is it that is not working about those transfers? How should we be interpreting them? What are, what were they meant to be for? And and then we can get into to why it is more, more spending doesn't necessarily result mm-hmm. in better outcomes. Well, the um, First Nations are like municipalities that don't belong to the province, uh, oversimplifying, but that's the first cut at it. So these are municipalities that are not governed by a Provincial Municipalities Act. The uh, Indian Act is kind of like a a Municipalities Act for First Nations, Mm -hmm. and the Federal Department of Indian Affairs um, is kind of like a Provincial Department of Municipalities. Uh, there has to be a set of rules when you're going to have communities around the country that are not fully governed by normal provincial rules. You've got to have a set of rules so they can interact with the rest of the world. So those rules come from, come from Ottawa. And there will always be, have to be transfers from a senior government to municipalities. That's, again, it may not be ideal, but that's the way Canada has always been set up that, uh, local governments are to some extent subsidized by senior governments. And so First Nations governments uh, will have, deserve and will continue to have subsidies to uh, to make their communities viable. And, you know, it goes for all, you know, obvious things like building roads and uh, funding schools and uh, their system of local government and uh, on and on and on. Now, what's, um, and to me, that's not controversial. Uh, that uh, you know that that would happen. Um, the the problem on top of that has been the extension of the welfare state to uh, First Nations communities, which begins to start in a small scale in the 1950s. The first step was uh, um, pension plan. It goes on from there. So all contemporary welfare programs are extended to these communities uh, and the residents don't pay taxes to support them. Well, I mean, maybe they, they pay some taxes when they're shopping off reserve. Uh, but in general, you know, in general, they don't pay income tax for income earned on reserve. They don't pay property tax, etc. cetera. Uh, don't pay GST for purchases on reserve. So this, this is like manna from heaven uh, when people get benefits without uh, contributing and, it has uh, created real barriers to uh, to work and investment in the future. If you can be supported indefinitely across mm-hmm. generations by these transfer payments, uh, if the government uh, educates your children and sends you to the hospital and uh, um, uh, gives you cash, uh, pocket money through welfare and builds houses for you to live in, it's, I mean, uh, what do you have to do really? Uh, to support you. I mean, if you're unusually ambitious, yes, you will uh, pursue it. But for a lot of a lot of people, uh, and the same would be absolutely true of any group of people if they were supported like this, uh, regardless of race, a lot of people would um, lose their incentives for uh, for earning a living and self improvement. So that's the um, the fundamental problem, or one one of many problems, is not the Indian Act as such. It's the uh, 
extension of the welfare state to uh, hmm. um, pe to people whose material standard of living was fairly low to begin with. Now, the, the welfare state across Canada in hasn't totally undermined work incentives for Canadians because the standard of living furnished uh, that way is is much lower than most Canadians w would accept. And not for all. I mean, there are some who are content to live that way, but but that standard of living was in cash terms was much much higher than First Nations people were used to. Suddenly they had were getting um, getting these transfer payments. So that's been very mm -hmm. uh, you know it's a disaster I think. And uh, the, uh, the you know the leaders of the First Nations that I've been studying are very opposed to the welfare system and they talk about the the harm that is done. And so what they are doing is creating positive alternatives uh, of employment. Uh, whether it's Clarence Louis getting his people to work in Osoyoos and picking grapes, or, um, in the uh, in, in up in the oil sands, uh, which are now the greatest employer of Aboriginal people in country, it's in the oil sands. Um, it's, it's, it's still true that a job is the best welfare program, and so the visionary leaders have been have been pushing in that direction. So uh, let, let me just revisit how you described your first stab at describing how reserves work is sort of a municipal, they've got municipal functions, but they are under the umbrella of the federal government through the Indian Act. And then there's all these other programs. So they're almost like a hybrid, uh, a reserve is almost like a hybrid of a municipal and provincial government, because there's still also an obligation to provide healthcare and welfare and law and services for seniors and education and that becomes really complicated when you get to very small size reserves i i this is what i'm sort of really trying to grapple with is that it would be we, we couldn't even imagine of a uh a, a, a sort of a city of only 500 people having to provide all of those services themselves through a single level of government. And yet that's kind of the structure that we have in a lot of First Nations, especially the ones that are smaller and more remote. And well, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, you know, look at the numbers. There's, uh, I can't offhand remember the latest population count for people with, uh, with Indian status. It's, uh, I think it's about 750,000. There's, uh, about 630 First Nations in Canada. So the average, you know, average First Nation is uh, a little over a thousand. Hmm. Uh, approximately half of First Nations people live off reserves. So the average reserve population is going to be five or 600. Um, now, now there are a few that are bigger and uh, can use the advantages of a larger population, but there are so many that are are really very small and um <coughs> excuse me yeah that's that's a fundamental problem uh there there may be some solutions to them but the solutions obviously have mm -hmm. to involve cooperation with neighboring entities to get the services that you could never possibly provide for yourself and um you know same thing happens rural alberta has many small communities and you know they get together and they provide a some kind of regional school or regional high school. They they set up a regional water system for for water and sewage, and you know th these are problems that have solutions if you can if if you can work together. But if your starting point is that you're a sovereign nation of six hundred people, it's, mm -hmm. that doesn't get you very far.
No kidding. Okay, so then let's talk about how important own source revenues have been. And I, I wonder if you've seen a change in this in recent times, because as, as we've already established, you've been you've been looking at the, the prosperity on reserves for a, a number of decades now. Is has, has there been some kind of turning point where now we're beginning to see a lot more of this economic development? Or is it just that it's always been there and we're just now quantifying it? No, no, it's, it's definitely growing. Um, no question about it. It's not growing everywhere, but it is growing uh, for those First Nations that are becoming, uh, developing a higher uh, community well-being index, which is a way of measuring the standard of living on a reserve. Um, and uh, own source revenue is quite strongly correlated with, uh, uh, with, with the better community well-being uh, index. And, th and that... Uh, own source revenue is coming in different ways and that's i mean that's good because it shows that there's a lot of different possibilities uh <clears throat> one to, uh, casinos uh working for some a few uh not a great number but if there's a few first nations that are bringing in a lot of revenue through casinos they would bring in more if government would let them have better locations but um there's there's that's that's one example another is um resource revenue production of oil and gas, for example, not only, because also hard rock minerals and forestry are important, um, but uh, uh, resource royalties, um, co-ventures with, uh, uh, with with corporations that are doing resource development, um, real estate development uh, near cities that can take the form of residential housing, shopping centers, golf courses, um, hotels, I mean, almost anything, if the location is good. Uh, recreational uh, developments, well, I mean, casinos are a kind of recreation, but uh, you can also, for you have the right, the right location, you can have uh, marinas for boating, fishing, uh, fishing lodges, hunting lodges, um, campgrounds, you know, all sorts of things, big and small opportunities for uh, for earning revenue, uh, location for other kinds of businesses. Uh, often a reserve can offer a, a low tax environment. Um, and uh, so there's some of that in some reserves that are near big, big cities. But you know, the reality is most reserves are relatively small. They don't have a big labor force to offer. So uh, it's, it's occasionally that may work out. And if it does, that's great. But more, it's probably going to be more a matter of uh, a favorable location. But so businesses can be uh, can be uh, can be sited on. Uh, uh, so you can have like a business park on reserve. That's their biggest resource is land from an economic point of view. And some of that land is very well located for different purposes. Some of it is not very valuable at the present time, but maybe it will be in the future. Well, it's um, let's talk about, about this as well, because I wonder if it requires a different set of, of policies to try to deal with those remote rural communities, because you're, you're quite right. Um, when I was reading your work on the successful casinos, 
Um, I've been to a lot of them. I've been to Grey Eagle, which is right near Calgary off the, from, uh, on the Sutina land. I've been to the River Cree, which is on the Enoch First Nations. Uh, even Stony Nakoda, which is on route to Banff. I think all three of those are, are incredibly well situated and quite profitable. And I just sort of assumed that that was the case with, uh, with a lot of, of those, of those uh, facilities is that they were located where they would have the highest chance of success. But, but that, that sounds actually like it's kind of unusual. It is. Government of Alberta has been the most, what I would consider, forward-looking in allowing First Nations to have profitable locations. Um, there, there's only two profitable types of, really profitable types of locations. One is metropolitan, and the other is uh, some kind of uh, vacation resort ambiance. Um, so we have Calgary and Edmonton, even the Stony Nakoda. Actually, they wanted to be much closer to Calgary. They wanted to locate it on the edge of their reserve, but the government wouldn't let them uh, because they would be too much competition for privately owned or government owned casinos in Calgary and Edmonton. So they had to take uh, second best, which is the Banff uh, Highway. It's, uh, you know, it's better than nothing and they do make money, but they don't make nearly as much as the uh, Gray Eagle or um, or Enoch uh, River Creek, but when you go to other provinces, the First Nations mostly shut out of the metropolitan areas: Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Regina, Toronto, Montreal, on and Vancouver, on and on and on. So they get rural locations and they make some money, and that's great, but it's uh, hmm. not nearly as much as as they could make. Um, anyway, but the bigger problem of of location. Yes, there is a really serious problem of remote northern reserves. And, you know, everybody knows the names of a few that have had, had chronic, you know, terrible problems like Kasechewan and so on. Um, and the research shows, quantitative research that I've done shows, there's definitely a correlation between favorable location and, and making progress and reserves that are more remote. There's ways of measuring that, but reserves that are more remote are are less likely to be to be making progress, although uh, remoteness can can change. Like Fort Mackay uh, is is remote in an objective sense until the oil sands are developed. Suddenly, it's in the heart of the biggest industrial play in the world. Uh, so, remoteness is not fixed forever. And uh, I think the best thing that the government of Canada could do to help uh, poor northern reserve communities is improvement of uh, of transportation infrastructure um, roads railways and pipelines you know the government has, has done more harm to first nations by blocking northern pipelines than, than you can imagine there are dozens of first nations that were going to get substantial benefits from supporting northern gateway well they were they were shut out um, energy east uh, would have helped others uh, you know these 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 decisions to block pipelines are uh, are, are you know are terrible for uh, in, in each case you know there'd be dozens of First Nations supporting it. So uh, fortunately, a couple are going ahead. TMX is going ahead. Coastal Gas Link is going ahead. Although there's you know a lot of fighting over it, and in both cases they almost were blocked, um, just barely managed to survive. Um, but that would be the best thing that could be done would be better roads, railways, and pipelines. And, and yeah, sure, telecommunications would be important, but, uh, you know, remote First Nations are not going to 
make themselves prosperous by, um, you know, working in your bathrobe at your laptop, uh, doing stock trading, or uh, you know, that's a, it's a different kind of economy altogether. Mm -hmm. uh, these these are people who, uh, uh, you know, are going to going to prosper by doing building things, uh, clearing things, um, living on a in, in a resource frontier. And those are the kinds of opportunities that need, you know, they need roads for their trucks, uh, pipelines for the gas that they can, or the oil that they can help to produce. And, and they need better harbors for their boats. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that they need. And it may well be that it's both because ultimately you can deliver better services remotely if you've got a good internet connection so telehealth as a for instance or distance learning as a for, for instance so maybe we're on the cusp of developing enough available broadband technology that some of the rural communities can be interconnected that way i'm thinking of elon Musk's satellite project which is intended to, to essentially give broadband to the world and i i suspect that's going to make an enormous difference but you're right if you if you don't even have a basic road year-round to get in and out of your community. I, I, mm. I, I'm trying to even imagine how much that would change most people's lives if they had to, if, if those were the circumstances presented to them. And I think we need to be, we need to be very clear that that actually is the circumstance of many First Nations. You should give me an idea of how many, I mean, how many have an ice road and that's it. And then they're, they're sort of cut off from the rest of, of, uh, of, of direct access commuter roads the rest of the time. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like about 20 or 25 percent of uh, First Nations are, let's say 20 percent, are, are in a really remote category. Hmm. You know, so that's a lot of, of First Nations, but still, it's only a minority of the overall situation. You know, if 20 percent are really remote, well, 80 percent are not. So uh, how do you address the special problems of the really remote ones? And I'm not against better services. Yeah, for sure. But better services are not going to uh, deal with the situation of, of chronic poverty. People don't get out of poverty by getting better services. If we've learned anything, we've learned that. They get out of chronic poverty by uh, getting jobs and becoming self-supporting. Mm. So, uh, you know, better services are fine and they, should, and they should have them. But that's not what's going to make the difference. What's going to make the difference is more job opportunities. So let me talk to you if you can, because you've looked at the the, the community index and t tell me what some of the factors are when you're judging how well one community does relative to the other. Because I remember looking at the, the results that you did for Alberta and I think Fort Mackay is not only the most prosperous First Nation, but I think even in terms of some of their measures, they are most the most prosperous um, a, a jurisdiction in Alberta. Period. They have so much. Well, highest wealth. income. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, highest income. Yeah. They don't. They wouldn't score the highest on the overall community okay. well-being index, but they do have, in fact, the highest uh, cash income. Yeah. There are four factors in the index: um, uh, income, uh, participation in the job market. Uh, in other words, are you employed or not? Um, formal education. What's the highest level of formal education? and quality of housing, which is measured by uh, Statistics Canada when they ask questions about how many rooms are in your house and does it need major repairs. And then these 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 are the four areas and then their uh, employment is measured by, in, or excuse me, income is just measured by income. But uh, the others, there's a couple of sub-indexes and all of this is aggregated 
And, you know, there's a bit of mysticism in it doing this. It's kind of arbitrary, but um, th this is the way these measures are constructed in all kinds of economic research. There's nothing really different about this. And uh, so it's a standard type of approach. Well, then let and, me ask you, here's where I'm trying to go with this. I'm glad you sort of explained how the index is created. But are there some obvious categories that result from it? Because we talked about 20 to 25% being extremely rural, remote, and 80% yeah. being close. Is it more granular than that? Can you divide it into quintiles? Is it quartiles? Is there sort of some generalities that you can make about the different groups? Because each different group would require different policy solutions is, I think, where I'm going with this. Yeah. I'm wondering if, if something emerges from the data that's obvious about how we should be talking about the different groupings. Yeah, I've tried to do some of that work. And, you know, for example, in one paper I did a few years ago, I, and it got re reprinted in my book. I listed the, I was originally going to be the top 20. Well, it turned out to be the top 21 because of a tie score. Um, these are First Nations with the Community Wellbeing Index. I think it was 73 or above at the time. And um, these have a standard of living, which is really not far off the Canadian, Canadian average. Um, it's not like Mount Royal in Calgary, but or or Carisdale in Vancouver, but it you know it's kind of like a, a normal middle class or working class neighborhood in Canada where people have jobs and their kids are going to school and they have comfortable houses and so forth. Um, so there's 20 that are clearly in that in that category, and then there's another 50 or 60 that are sort of aspiring, getting close to that, uh, and then down at the other end there are. Um, and I don't know the exact number, but you know, probably uh, one to two hundred that are, I'm guessing, uh, that are living in really deplorable, you know, what we probably would call third world conditions. And these are mainly the remote uh, mm -hmm. reserves, whether they are up north or there are uh, there are some quite remote locations on the prairies as well. Uh, and then in between, there's every everybody's kind of strung out. So I've been focusing on the most prosperous by by design. I mean, I've, not only, but I've really emphasized the the success stories on the assumption that if we could see what has really worked well, we would find lessons that uh, other First Nations could emulate. It's not what Flanagan is telling them to do or what the government is telling them to do. It's what uh, it's what they can see other First Nations have done. And so that's why I focused on the most successful. Here's what I would I would uh, posit, and you'll have to tell me if this is true. This would be my 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 working hypothesis is that the closer you are to a large city and the larger your own population, that's probably very strongly correlated with doing well. And the reason I want to put that out there is because that then creates a whole set of different policy alternatives we'd have to look at for the small rural and remote that I want to talk to you about but is, is is there any example of a small rural remote community that is in that top 20 because that that might be an interesting uh, one to look at for what oh, sure doing. yeah yeah Fort Mackay is very small it's only a few hundred members um, and it's uh, extremely successful the size of population doesn't matter as far as hmm. I could tell yeah I, I ran that in various regressions when I started my research and I just never got a significant loading on, on uh, population size hmm. at all. I think, I think it's an irrelevant characteristic. Uh, it's not how many people you have. It's what your people are doing uh, that counts. Location on the other hand is extremely important and it is, uh, it's obviously much easier for 
um, some First Nations communities that are in or near Vancouver or, or on the edge of Calgary or Edmonton. Um, and there's some other near, uh, near Halifax and so forth. Uh, they have business opportunities if they want to take advantage of them. And, uh, and they have, whether it's through real estate or casinos, or, uh, so on. Um, so yeah, the, there's, there's a heavy, uh, if you look at that top 20, you know, like about half of them would hmm. or more would be obviously good locations, but then the others are those, <laughs> which are rural if you look at the map, remote if you look at the map, but they do have an, something that they can work with, whether it's being in the oil sands or whether it's being near um, uh, hard rock mine, uh, possible development, or whether it's having a, a good forest uh, that, that can be managed. So there are these, uh, or agriculture, you know, uh, mm. like uh, Clarence Louie, uh, uh, down in Osoyoos. I mean, it's a picturesque spot, but the people were desperately poor until he came along because the potential there, uh, it, it's basically uh, wine and tourism. That's that's what they have going for them in that area. Uh, manufacturing's uh, not going to be important there. And uh, agric agriculture, other than specialized things like grape growing or fruit growing, is, is very limited. Um Hunting and trapping is long gone. I mean, what do you do? Well, he, he got them going on first growing grapes and selling grape juice to the wineries and then setting up their own um, recreational businesses, uh, their own winery that people could visit, and a hotel, golf course, hmm. and so on. Um, so he took the advantages that were there and uh, and his people developed those. And they're making, they're not in the top 21 yet, but they've made hmm. a whole lot of progress. So, um, so that's what it comes down to is, uh, that's why there's no one set scheme to follow. You have to analyze your situation and take, take advantage of whatever you have. So let's then talk more about infrastructure. Cause I, I'm going to say something that I'm probably going to get in trouble for, but, um, but it, you have one of two ways of addressing this rural remote impoverishment. One is that you say, here are the essential elements of infrastructure that we need in order to give access to the community. We need a, an airport and we need a, a major highway uh, or we need to have a rail line or, or maybe all three, but there's a cost factor. If you're, if you're building all that infrastructure just to get to a very small community of three or four or 500 people, then maybe it makes more sense to say, gosh, we made a mistake when we established the reserve where we did how about we do a land swap? And because that's one of the things in the UN Declaration on Indigenous Rights, it talks about being able to fully make a person whole and redress can be described, can be enacted by giving um, a alternative land. Should we have that conversation? I mean, it feels like we, we keep on identifying the problems, but we don't identify practical solutions. We've got a government not prepared to do the major infrastructure improvements. And so, is it realistic to think that you might be able to relocate an entire community in a place that would allow them to prosper and thrive? I, I, I don't want to, I sound naive, I know. And that's why I say I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying so. But it, it seems to me we have a, an immense amount of goodwill on this uh, reconciliation front. I, I think Canadians as a whole genuinely want to solve this problem. And it doesn't feel like we're looking at 
at solutions that are going to get us to full to full resolution. That's, I guess, my frustration. So, so give me an idea of what of what you think about about those two proposals. Mm -hmm. um, well, you're you're right. This uh, some infrastructure would be just way too expensive right now. So I think what you do, the practical way of approaching it, is to build infrastructure where it's part of a larger development that's going to be profitable. So uh, Northern Gateway Pipeline would have been profitable uh, for Canada, for investors, you know, for companies, and for all the First Nations that would have gotten jobs and contracts uh, as part of that. Uh, and along with Northern Gateway would have come in order to build it, you'd have to have better roads uh, to do it. So there would have been a lot of improvements that way. Similarly, in Ontario, you've got the potential um, ring of fire mining development, which has been now stalled for decades for reasons that I don't fully understand because I haven't studied Ontario in great detail. But hmm. uh, it, it, it hinges on the province building roads. I mean, it won't be profitable until there are roads. But once the roads are built, I think it will be profitable. So. Uh, you can't build a road everywhere, but you could probably build a certain network of roads in Northern Ontario uh, that would that you could afford to do. So, you know, you can't help everybody all at once, but you can certainly help. Uh, it's not really a case of helping people, as you can certainly, I guess, help people to help themselves uh, in, in in certain situations. And and these are not small situations. You know, there are some big situations uh, where you could do it. Um, so that's how I would approach the infrastructure. I don't have utopian dreams of uh, road building and pipeline building and so on, but uh, th th there's lots of projects I think that could go ahead if uh, with, with the right government support. So of the so if we're looking at you say maybe a hundred to two hundred that are in extreme impoverished conditions, there's obviously a certain portion that you could build the appropriate infrastructure out the way that you describe. But are there some communities that are, are really just in that mode of we have to apologize that they were relocated to the wrong place and see if we can have a conversation about relocation? Or is that just a non-starter? Will that never go anywhere? Well, it, it hasn't gone anywhere in the past. It, I mean, it has been tried. There have been a couple of efforts at, at, at relocation, but they failed. Uh, People went, but they didn't like the new location, and, and, and they insisted on going back. Um, these locations, which are now, we say they're non-starters, these were often chosen by the, uh, you know, by, by the ancestors of our current Aboriginal people. They were locations that, that made good sense at the time. They were uh, um, next to lakes for fishing or rivers for, for fishing and transportation. They were in sort of swampy areas, which may have been great for tramping, uh, hunting grounds. Uh, they become less useful in the modern age, but the people are historically attached to these areas. And, uh, you know, they have reasons for wanting to stay there. So I personally don't think that relocation is ever going to, uh, uh, to, to be a very big part of the answer. There may be a few, a few cases where people agreed to it, but I, I mean, forced relocation is completely out now. Um, there's no way politically that that will ever happen. So it can only be done through consent. And the experience shows that uh, consent is not easily forthcoming. So uh, I, I, I just uh, have chosen not to explore that road. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's going to happen. 
All right, well, here's the problem that we have now. Maybe it's not a problem. Let me put it to you. The UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, I've spoken with First Nations leaders before, as I know you have, for instance, Dale Swampy and Stephen Buffalo and others. Those who are, are really at the forefront, I think, of wanting to talk about economic development, job creation, developing companies and partnerships. And I think their concern about the UN Declaration is that uh, it, uh, it empowers uh, First Nations communities and individuals to say no to development, but it, it doesn't give an explicit, clear empowerment for those communities who want to proceed with development to say yes. And I, I wonder if that is fair criticism of it. I, I, I went through and looked at the declaration and this, this phrase of, of, of fair, free, and, uh, and, and prior, or free, Free, free prior, prior and informed, and informed consent. consent. Free prior and mm -hmm. informed consent. Appears in many cases um, and in many of the articles. And and so I'm wondering which article in particular is the one that is causing this pause and this concern that it might end up acting as a veto over developments. Well, it's the one that you just quoted. I think it's section 36.2, I believe. I'd have to double check that. Uh, but it says that... Uh, you know, no economic development can't take place without the free prior and informed consent of the of the indigenous people. Um, so, I mean, to me, that's a veto. I think that's the the clear meaning of of the language. Uh, well, Canada has developed a an alternative jurisprudence um, over many years, which has created the the right to be consulted and the duty of government to consult and accommodate. Um, courts, including the Supreme Court, have uh, have said that this is a right to be consulted, but it is not a veto power. So if you overlay the United Nations language on top of the Canadian language, you're going to um, raise a lot of doubt about what exactly Canadian jurisprudence means, and you're going to touch off a new round of uh, of challenges now the the right the the right to be consulted and the duty to consult were created by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2004 uh, it took a long time to clarify what they meant I think we have reached some clarity on that uh, now 17 years later but it took a lot of time and 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 uh, and uh, failed projects along the way like uh, Northern Gateway was held up for so long that the political government changed and the liberals killed it. Uh, you know, just to take one big example. It almost killed TMX. Um, it did kill the Mackenzie Valley pipe, uh, gas pipeline in, in 2006 mm -hmm. or seven, um, or eight, 2008, I guess. Um, so, you know, we have our own jurisprudence and what the, UNDRIP will do is to put all that into doubt. Now, uh, I, you know, I, I try not to be a chicken little here. The sky is falling. The bill that's going to be passed uh, doesn't actually legislate the the UNDRIP standard of uh, in, in this regard. It says that Canada should be moving in that direction and should set up a process for getting there. And there's the consultation and there has to be an annual reporting and so forth. It doesn't immediately say that um, the First Nations have a veto power, which the Supreme Court has said they don't have. Uh, and it could be that over a period of years that this will be 
consulted in a way which is, you know, not damaging. So it's, I'm not saying sky is falling today, but I, I was opposed to it. I think it creates, you know, additional headaches that we don't really need after we have, in fact, made some progress on this front. But, you know, that's what happened. Uh, it's it's going to be passed. So now we'll have to try and work uh, within that as best we can. You know, it's interesting because here's the the danger that gets set up is we've just talked about the essentials that are needed to bring infrastructure to communities. We've just talked about the best way to bring that infrastructure to those communities is to piggyback on a major development, whether it's forestry or mining or oil and gas. But by giving this veto uh, to elders in a community, if they use a traditional or a, a more an historic hereditary approval process, that could cause companies to try to steer away from the very communities that they should be steering towards. And of I'm course, yeah. And, and so talk to me about your most recent paper on, on uh, how an energy can lead to reconciliation with First Nations, because as we've sort of mapped this through, I've had a bit of an aha moment. And I wonder if maybe the problem with some of these large companies is they lead with, we're going to build a pipeline across your land. And maybe they should be leading with, we're going to be building a road to your property. And uh, we're going to be building rail infrastructure. And we're going to make sure we've got telecommunications. And all of this is to aid your community so that you will be able to have individuals who can work on this other project that we're working on, by the way. I'm wondering if there's, if we don't sell the benefits of the infrastructure development, if that, if that comes somewhat down the road, and I wonder if, if we need to be leading with that. Tell me your thoughts on it. Well, I think the companies will adapt as best they can. They have certainly uh, changed their approach to pipeline construction. You know, there was a time when it was just assumed that the, the pipeline would run and that was it. Um, but, you know, that day is gone and, and the pipeline companies have uh, uh, adapted and, They've tried to introduce things like a share of equity ownership, um, and you know, and they will adapt further if they uh, if they have to. Um, but there is a point at which projects become unprofitable if there's too many conditions loaded onto it. Uh, at a certain point, it may just not make any sense, and the the projector will walk away. I mean, that's what happened with TMX. TMX is going to be built, but only because the government decided uh, that they had to do it after. Um, well, it's basically the government of Canada killed it by allowing all the nonsense out on the coast and uh, and not stepping in. And so um, the owner was going to give it up. Hmm. So instead, the government of Canada bought it and is going to finish. Uh, well, it's not done yet. We hope it will get done. Um, but that one would have been dead, too, if the government of Canada hmm. hadn't come to its uh, comes to its senses. So. Um, you know, I just would, would hate to repeat all that history by making it harder to do the kinds of developments that uh, are demonstrably beneficial to First Nations and which so many First Nations actually want. Uh, there is a minority that don't, but the majority of First Nations who are located anywhere near these projects have, uh, you know, have, have come out in favor of them and they demonstrably benefit, uh, benefit from them. So I'm I just would hate to see UNDRIP. You know, and, and a good example of 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 this is um, you're talking about about BC passing Bill Forty One. BC passed Bill Forty One, and what that did was to touch off the national railway blockade. Uh, I hope our our listeners haven't forgotten that. 
because you know, COVID it's, is. It's, it's remarkable because that was the big crisis until a month later, COVID became the big crisis. But you're quite right. I mean, the, yeah. the, the country was shut down. Yeah, and it was shut down because one faction of one First Nation remained opposed to construction of coastal gasoline pipeline, whereas uh, all the 20 elected governments of those First Nations uh, had signed on to it for, and were going to get big benefits from supporting it. Uh, but there was one faction of one community that was remained opposed. And uh, once uh, Bill 41 was passed, this uh, one faction picked up the mantle of UNDRIP, uh, United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And, uh, you know, and they said, we haven't given our consent. And uh, th then the professional protesters around the country started uh, trying to shut down well, the CN mainline was the main thing, but there were other lots of, of blockades of, of railways and roads and airports and stuff that were of shorter duration. Um, you know, it was a very close thing. The, the government of Canada appeared to waver for weeks. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't clear out the blockades. Uh, it's, it's not difficult to imagine that the coastal gas link could have been abandoned. Uh, if the government had made a, Finally, they decided to clear the blockades and let the Mounties do their job. But uh, it, it um, you know, it could easily have gone the other way. You know, and most people across the country wouldn't really have understood what was at stake or how could they? Uh, it's a very remote part of Canada and only a relatively few people are involved in terms of numbers of people. So although the, the economic implications are enormous, so anyway, the last thing we need is another round of uh, of this, this this sort of protest over projects which are actually and desired by and beneficial to a majority of First Nations people. Mm. Let's then talk. You've coined a really great term that I'm going to use, and it's going to stay with me, and I think it helps frame it well. You talked about First Nations capitalism and how it's yeah. different in its manifestation, just as capitalism is different in every culture it manifests, but it's still at a core, the same built based on the same principles of property rights and free enterprise and wealth creation and profit and so on. So I wonder if there's another way that we can be looking at First Nations democracy, because I, I'm very conscious of the fact that when we talk about European style systems, that's where we get the pushback is, oh, no, 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 in this particular community, that's not the way they've historically made decisions. And it's um, it's colonialist and patriarchal to try to impose a, a, a European style of government on those communities. But, but maybe we need to reframe this as, yes, we recognize that First Nations democracy might have different elements to it, but the foundation of any good governance system is that we have rule of law and we've got some way of testing the will of the community and making those decisions. And I, I wonder if you can maybe flesh out that idea for me. Is there, what do we need to be thinking of for First Nations democracy? Because you'd mentioned private property rights and governance from your First Nations second thoughts are sort of the two foundational things that we need to get right in order to see First Nations communities develop uh, to the kind of prosperity what we want to see, which is equivalent to non-Indigenous communities. So we've talked, I think, quite a bit about the, the property rights aspect, but do you have some thoughts on First Nations democracy and what we should be considering there? Well, the, you're right that the rule of law is the, is the key thing. Uh, no matter how the governors are selected, you've got to have a, uh, a stable rule of law for First Nations capitalism to work. And a, a great example of this is the West Bank First Nation, 
in British Columbia, which have prospered by pursuing the, uh, the path of real estate development, most of which is based on certificates of possession. So in this case, it's both um, in, it's individual ownership rights and uh, uh, and an element of uh, public investment as well. But the, uh, the the individual side has been the predominant one. Um, but they have um, um, they've pursued the path of self-government. They've gotten out of the Indian Act. They have uh, adopted a constitution and a related legislation, which is admirably clear about the rights of various categories of landholders. And it's all out in the open. And uh, they have uh, an elect. They it's not the Indian Act system exactly, but they have elections for uh, chief and council. But they also have a, a, a parallel system of elections for people who uh, live on their land who are not members, and that's now like fifteen or twenty thousand people. Uh, and they they elect a council, which then meets with the the band council and and uh, explains what their issues are. And, They've, you know, it seems to be working. I went out there and talked to the people. They, nobody was complaining about the government. It, uh, it appeared to be working. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to do it. But the notion of clarity, publicity, uh, rule of law, the, that's central. Now, when you get down to nuts and bolts of uh, democracy in the sense of how you elect the, the, the chief and council or whatever your officers are called, um, there's... Bands can are not bound by the Indian Act. They can have traditional governments or modified Indian Act governments. Um, when I ran the numbers, I could not find any quantitative evidence that one system of government was working better than another. Uh, so I come back to the point, like when I said about size of population, mm. it's not how many people you have, it's what they're doing. Well, uh, in the same way, it's as far as I could find, it was not how you elect your or select your rulers, it, uh, rulers sounds too strong, but you know, your governors, how you select them, it's not so much that that counts, it's what they're doing. Um, so again, I'm, I'm open-minded on the form of government. Uh, uh, I think are you are you able to give us a history lesson here as well? I don't want to, to press you if you haven't looked into it, but I, I don't really um, have a clear understanding of whether democratic decision-making was common in Canada's bands. I mean, I think, I think we, we've heard, I think the, the Iroquois had a similar type of democratic system made, might have manifested in a different way. That's sort of my only recollection of hearing about democracy is, is the idea of having your rulers express the sentiment that is commonly held of the people. Is that, is that, a, is that part of a first nation's governance historically i i think maybe maybe that's where i'm a bit unclear or was it just the chief makes the decision and off we go and that's how it works or is it that the elders make the decision and it doesn't matter what the what the general will of the people is can, can you shed some light on that well yeah I, I, oh, I hope so um the notion of formal institutions of government as we understand them uh was not part of the, the cultural heritage of the canadian first nations uh I mean, that, that's not true everywhere in the New World. The, the Incas and the Aztecs and so on had formal institutions of government, but um, North American Indians did not. That's not to say that their their governments were arbitrary by any means. They they were more consensus style. They were mm. they usually we're talking about small communities and uh, 
there were community ways of, of uh, leadership, but it was based on consensus. And if you didn't like it, you know, you, you could leave. There weren't fixed boundaries. And most of the time people were off uh, hunting and fishing anyway, uh, making a living, so to speak. And so when Europeans came, well, then we introduce our notions of, uh, but it goes, you know, it goes along with a lot of other things. It goes along with literacy and record keeping and so on. So formalized government is part of the package. So there's really no Aboriginal tradition of how you would run a formalized government. They had informal processes. You know, when they speak of laws, uh, you know, of course they had laws, but they were in the form of, of traditions embodied in, in myths and stories about right conduct and the origin of the cosmos and all these things which gave them guidance on how to live. That's not the modern understanding of the law as something that's been passed and entered in a statute book. So formalized, there, there's, not, there's really no right way to construct a, a formalized system of government based on, uh, on Aboriginal principles. So you have to you know, try, and try and develop that. And I think different First Nations will do it in, in different ways. But you know, First Nations, they are part of the modern world. People are going, they're getting our kind of education. They're literate. They're reading books. They're watching television. They know what it means to vote in Canada. And so, you know, for the most part, you're not going to be able to tell them that they should still live under some kind of theocracy in their own community or some select family. Uh, it may work in a few limited cases, but by and large, uh, they're, they're going to want democratic government and it may be set up but you can argue about how long the term of office should be or who exactly has the right to vote uh you know there, there there's lots of legitimate debates but i think the general idea of democracy and formalized government is here to stay for for first nations um now what i think what probably does make sense is uh, supplementary institutions you know so you have a an elected chief and council. Well, you may also want to have a council of elders or clan mothers. So different sources of advice, um, you know, frequent uh, consultative meetings with, you know, for small communities, you can have like a, a town hall meeting type of thing. And so you can supplement formalized institutions of election with other consultative mechanisms. And that's probably in most cases, I think a good, uh, a good solution and there and there's a wide variety of that being practiced on the ground now it may not be legislatively required but it's it, uh, it, it you know astute leaders are doing that anyway just to maybe to stay in power for no other reason i remember when i interviewed up at fort mckay jim boucher talked about how yeah he's got his council and so forth but then he would also have a council of elders that he visited and they had annual or more even more frequent uh, town hall meetings i'm calling it that they didn't call it that but community meetings and they even had off uh, off campus community meetings because a lot of their people were living now in fort mcmurray but they were still members and they'd go down and they'd have consultations in fort mcmurray because these people might move back to fort mckay at any time or they still might use certain services through fort mckay so they had a wide variety of consultative mm -hmm. mechanisms that complemented their formal institutions of uh of government. I'm stuck on something you said at the start of this conversation, which was in this kind of um, consensus style government, 
hunter-gatherer kind of government. If you didn't like the decision being made, you could leave. And that's quite different than what we're seeing in Manifest today, which is I disagree with the majority. I disagree with the elected councils. I disagree with the community. And therefore, I have veto. That's a kind of a different conception. And I'm, I'm wondering, is there some precedent for that in what we know about indigenous governance structures is there precedent for veto yeah um yeah i wouldn't want to pontificate on that you I, haven't I seen never, anything that's fine well, I've, I've never looked at that particular point mm -hmm. i mean I'm, I'm pretty certain that the old general reality was uh consensus and uh backstopped by the possibility of leaving if you were if you were really unhappy and the, the lines around particular, the First Nations as we know them are kind of artificial constructions of the reservation allocation process. Uh, you know, there, there was no Enoch Cree First Nation. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there was no Tsutsina First Nation. Well, that's a little bit different because they were kind of an isolated group. But uh, most of the First Nations were, have formed around uh, groups which decided to band together for the purposes of uh, of getting a reserve, and then later they've assumed kind of a, a stronger communal identity. Of, but originally there was a people, there were Cree people, and within that there were many, many different uh, bands which would come together for certain purposes, or hunting, or making war, or trading, and so on. But it was a fluid, a fluid situation, and uh, there wasn't there, there wasn't a government with was enforcing any decision with. The, within fixed boundaries, what we think of the state, you know, just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, maybe to some extent for the Iroquois, uh, they had a, a strong chieftain style of government and you know, maybe you could talk about a proto-state of the Iroquois or something, but that was, uh, it was you know, pretty exceptional. Certainly the majority of First Nations were in a much more fluid um, situation. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, so anyway, I, I, to, to come back to the main point, I think that the formalized institutions of government are going to be a necessity in the modern age, but I think that they are. there's probably a lot of ways to supplement them that they can find within their own cultural background. When you look at coastal gas link then, what, what is the missing piece there? Because it, it, as I understand, I, I don't think we've got this concept of hereditary chiefs in the, in the prairie bands. I, I haven't, I haven't heard of that or the clan mothers. That seems to be maybe more of a, a coastal development, but what, what do you think ought to be the, the approach there? Because it seems like there is this um, notion that the wrong decision was made there, that um, that what should have happened. I'm saying this among the progressive activists who continue to fight against these projects. There, there does seem to be this sense that the deference should be to the the uh, the hereditary chief structure and not the elected council members. And I I wonder if there's a way of is that just going to be a cleavage point or are we going to actually come to some conclusion that the the elected councils have legitimacy and they have the ability to say yes and they have the ability to move forward even if there are members of the uh of the decision making body that are in opposition do you, do you have some insight in, into that particular case uh, well not the particular case i think people who have have studied it say that it's extremely complicated on the ground and I wouldn't wouldn't claim to try and pick it apart, um, but I think there's some general points that can be made. It's uh, 
rule of law demands clarity about what the law is. And if it's unclear, there has to be an authoritative way of deciding the dispute. This is why we have courts. Um, now, if you can have uh, traditional structures like Council of Elders or something, if they are advisory to the elected government, then you have clarity. Uh, elected government makes a decision. If their voters don't like it, they can vote them out of office the next time. Uh, you have frequent elections, uh, probably too frequent actually, but anyway, uh, there, there, there are mechanisms of change. Um, so, and you know, any, any major economic development is going to go on for many years. So if, if, if a count chief and council are running roughshod over the opinion of their members, it, they won't last. They'll be defeated at the next election. So the problem arises when you have a body in the case of the hereditary chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en, and they're self-appointed as far as I can tell, um, if a body claiming not just to be advisory, but to have authoritative decision-making powers, their claim was that they they controlled the traditional territory, which of course has never been legally defined. Um, and the uh, elected council only had jurisdiction over their reserves. Well, you know, that's an untenable situation to have um, two different quasi-governmental bodies claiming uh, different sets of uh, uh, of land rights, uh, you know, that, that just is not going to work. Hmm. Um, and that the, the position of the traditional chiefs has, it's been stated, but as far as I know, it's never mm -hmm. been upheld in court. Um, there, there is no jurisprudence that I know of that says that traditional chiefs in British Columbia have jurisdiction over traditional lands and etc. So it's a position which has been asserted, but there's not really good evidence for it. So it, whatever kind of government you're going to have, there has to be, a, if you're going to participate in the, in the modern economic world, there's got to be the ability to make a clear decision. Uh, and that, but that, and so that's where we came so close to disaster with Pacific, uh, uh, coastal gas link was the absence of clarity about uh, who could make the decision. Now, politically, sometimes you can bridge that gap if you get the hereditary chiefs on side, well, then there is no problem. But uh, sometimes politics fails hmm. and you have to resort to authority and there has to be somebody who can say this is the decision and then you have mechanisms for possibly reversing a decision through the electoral process. Um, yeah. And I should say that I think maybe I said this, but I'll just repeat it. I did a when I did the statistical analysis of community well-being standards. There wasn't any observable difference uh, for different types of government. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I said that already. Yeah, yeah, so it's not really how you elect your people; it's what your people are doing. Well, I think the the issue comes down. To, so I'm guess I'm wondering now, as we go forward from a policy point of view, what you'd recommend because. Uh, just in 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 reading through the progress that is being made on so many nations, it's it's almost like one nation finding the pathway gives the pathway to others who are following in the same track. And it and it seems like if we just allow this process to develop organically, as I love to do with free enterprise mm -hmm. and individual decision making and good, uh, well established property rights and investment and good governance structures, then we may be having a different conversation 20 years from today. But then there's also our government policies standing in the way. And is there something more that government needs to do? I, I don't know necessarily that the UN Declaration on Indigenous Rights, especially as you've described it, it doesn't necessarily have to result 
in in veto, especially since you've got so many First Nations leaders wanting to move forward on economic development. But but I also don't want to see this litigated for the next twenty years before we get to a resolution. So what? Uh, how do you see this unfolding? Are, are you optimistic? And are there things that government should either do proactively? or take out of the way to remove barriers in order to ensure more communities can enjoy the kind of prosperity that the, the top 20 are enjoying currently? Well, uh, you know, if I could answer all those questions, I wouldn't be a lousy retired professor. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't have great answers. But uh, the one thing that comes to mind, I think we ought to be uh, giving greater voice to those Aboriginal leaders that have a demonstrated record of improving the lives of the people that they were voted to represent. Uh, so you're interviewing me today. Well, do a podcast with Jim Boucher. Mm -hmm. Do a podcast with Clarence. I mean, some, some of these people are quite busy. They might not be able to sit down. But try and do one with uh, Clarence Louie, with, with Robert Louie from the West Bank First Nation. Um, and ask them, what do they think? You know, what problems do they encounter? What would they like to see different? What recommendations do they have for government policy changes that would actually facilitate what they've been able to accomplish? Um, you know, the voice of experience. I'd like to see governments consulting these people. Right now, uh, you know, the people that get consulted, heads of the Assembly of First Nations, uh, other groups of that type, you know, they've got different agendas. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm sure that they're acting in good faith and they think that they're going to make lives better for their people. But do they have a demonstrated record of improving the standard of living? People, I don't think so. I mean, they haven't. Uh, most of them, I don't think, have done it. And I know for a fact that some um, First Nations leaders who do have this demonstrated record have no interest in some of the, some of the Aboriginal associations that get all the publicity. You know, so, I mean, ideally, I guess I'd like to see a council of elders of the right kind of elders for governments to consult. Um, uh, you know, in Alberta, somebody like Jim Boucher should be a special advisor to the premier. He probably picks up the phone and talks to him anyway. But uh, if, you know, give these people recognition for what they have accomplished and um, and let their voice be heard. Uh, because, you know, the way things are today, I can... I don't speak as much as I want, uh, but a lot of uh, relevant people won't listen to me because uh, I'm not one of them. And they think maybe I'm hostile to them, but, you know, they, they will listen to a Jim Boucher or a, mm -hmm. uh, a Robert Louis. Um, so I'd like to see these the genuinely successful leaders be given greater prominence. And as I say, that could be through the media. Uh, people such as yourself, but, you know, government also uh, showing that they're consulting them and listening to them, uh, you know, and, and they'll have criticisms uh, to make. They're, they're not going to endorse everything that governments do. I, when I spoke to them, they made, you know, a lot of critical points about about government, even though they realized they had to get along with government, but they, they were often critical of certain government policies. So it won't all be roses. But their, their criticisms, will, this will be coming from people who have shown that they know what's needed. And to me, that's uh, much more valuable than hearing criticism from people who have no record of achievement except for, for rallying uh, 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 opposition in the media. 
What about neutralizing those who are, and it, you know, I, I want to be generous and I want to think that the environmental groups that partner with First Nations have the First Nations interests at heart, but I'm, I'd be quoting from First Nations who don't see it that way, like Ellis Ross and, and others who see that in some ways you've got environmental groups that come in and exploit the very powerful First Nations rights to stop development, and then they go away and go on to the next campaign. I, I don't know if you have some thoughts on what the energy industry or the forestry industry or the mining industry should do to try to counteract that that negative force that is, has been so successful in stopping the very development the communities need in order to, mm -hmm. to achieve some of these goals. Well, you know, we... Uh you know, we, we do live in a democracy and people have a right to speak. So there will be voices of people that that you disagree with or you think they're profoundly wrong. Uh, and you may even think their motives are bad. But nonetheless, they have a right to to make their case. So really, the only way of countering it is to trying to get uh, to get your side out in the public uh, forum. And that means promoting. And this is happening to some degree. And you mentioned names like Dale Swampian. Els Ross, and um, I mean, I think that's the right way is to uh, find the leaders who take a rational position on on these issues and promote them as much as you can, and uh, let let them do your talking. That have far more credibility uh, than people from the outside will. Um, so, uh, yeah. So my little contribution, I think, has been to cr to chronicle what the successful indigenous leaders have done and try and record that systematically using the tools of modern social science research um, to, to, to uh, make the information widely available for anybody who wants it. But the point is really to see what the, what the successful communities have done. And of course, leadership doesn't exist in a vacuum. You can only have leaders if you have followers. And so it's a community responsibility. Um, and so, uh, but, but highlighting these success stories and letting the successful leaders, you know, give them a bigger voice, uh, I think that would be, uh, would be a contribution. I've pretty well given up on uh, legislative reforms. They're not always useless. Some, some of them have been beneficial, but some have been positively harmful. Uh, like a really bad one was the when the Harper government introduced legislation to put uh, First Nations under the Canadian Human Rights Act, um, they they thought that, they, I mean, it sounded good. And I guess I think the motives were good because they felt that some First Nations governments were abusive of individuals and there ought to be recourse in appeal. But uh, the danger, and I actually I wrote about it at the time, but nobody paid attention, was that um, this would turn the... Uh, human rights uh, tribunals into vehicles for challenging government mm -hmm. policy and challenging legislation. And that's exactly what has happened. Now there's all the controversy about the cases on Jordan's principle or the child welfare cases coming through uh, human rights tribunals, which have absolutely no experience in dispensing large amounts of money, but they're making awards in the billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that shouldn't have happened. It wasn't intended to happen. Uh, it was an unintended, although not not an unforeseeable, but it was an unintended consequence of uh, probably well-meaning legislation. So, uh, 
Now, I could point to legislative reforms that I think have been beneficial, have opened some doors, but uh, but you got to have people walking through the doors. I mean, that's really the biggest need is to get the uh, get the local leadership galvanized, um, and you're not going to do that through through government. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you won't. Uh, I mean, I agree with you that markets work uh, when they're allowed to work. And here, I guess, let, let me ask you one last question is now that these reforms have started, if I was to talk to you 20 years from now, are you feeling enough to give you optimistic, uh, an optimistic outlook on, on where you think most nations are, are headed? Or are you worried that the, that the progress is, is being stalled substantially? Uh, well, you're going to need a special kind of internet because in 20 years, I'll be 97. Uh, <laughs> and you'll still be publishing. I know it. <laughs> but, uh, no, I'm only no, I'm not. I'm not greatly optimistic. I'm only cautiously optimistic. I think some progress will continue. I think if I could do this research 20 years from now, I'm sure there will be more First Nations in the higher categories. Standards of living will be better for some. I think there will still be a persistent pro- uh, problem of uh, Indigenous poverty. Um, there, there, there isn't a problem to be solved. There's a situation to be ameliorated by people doing the right things for themselves. Uh, like I grew up uh, in the academic world back in the 1960s and the big problem was uh, the situation of African-Americans in the United States. Um, so 60 years later, uh, it's it's still a problem. There, there actually has been some progress, probably not as much as there should have been, uh, but uh, there still is a persistent problem of black underclass in major American cities. Um, it's a long time and the, that, that hasn't gone away. So the, the things that we talk about today uh, won't, won't be gone in 20 years and we shouldn't dream of it. Uh, you know, this is the world and there are, there are some unfortunate situations and uh, we can't make them disappear. Uh, I think what we can do is allow as many people as possible to make life better for themselves. And if you can help with that, uh, well, that's, that's progress. All right. Thank you so much for the conversation today. I sure appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now. That was uh, Dr. Tom Flanagan, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Calgary and Senior Fellow at the Fraser Institute. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org. 